Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So the, uh, the talk tonight is about uh, bringing Dharma to um, the next generation. And the um, impetus for it is uh, this book that uh, came out last month, um, Awakening Joy for Kids, that I co-authored with a um, wonderful classroom teacher from uh, Vancouver, Canada, named Michelle Liliana. Um, and uh, oh, let's see, forward by Tara Brock, blurbs by lots of really good people, Jack Cornfield, Rick Hansen, and people like that. Um, and um, as, I, as I said uh, before the break, um, thinking of it as stealth dharma, um, which was really um, my thought in the first book that I wrote, um, with Shoshana Alexander called Awakening Joy on how practice is really uh, more than just opening up to suffering and learning to work with it and, and uh, grow from it, but the Buddha was called the happy one and that this path is one of happiness. And so I uh, wanted to um, share some principles and some practices that uh, incline the mind towards well-being and happiness that drawn from Buddhist teachings and philosophy uh, with minimal uh, Buddhist jargon and just accessible to, uh, to anyone. Uh, and as most of you know, besides the book, I teach a course each year about practicing those principles and and uh, and habits. So um, I've been teaching that course for for a number of years, actually since 2003. And a few years ago, this um, amazing force of energy, Michelle Liliana, uh, um, I met her teaching up in Vancouver. And uh, she said, I've been taking your course for a few years. I said, oh, that's really great. She said, and I've been using it in the classroom, and it really works. And I said, really? Well, what do you mean? And she said, oh, well, I've adapted your, your lessons uh, and your exercises and practices for my uh, elementary school classrooms. And she goes into a few different, um, few different grades and um, and she said, I just want you to know that um, you know that it's very translatable for kids. And I said, Oh, that's fantastic! And then uh, she shared with me some of her lessons, and we posted them for a while up on the Awakening Joy website and uh, little video clips and all. And then she came down um, about a year ago, year and a half ago or so, uh, to Berkeley. She was here for. Uh, I forget what was her first motivation for being here, but we spent some time and she said, I'm, uh, I think we should write a book. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, I thought I was all finished with writing books. Um, really? She said, yeah, we, and, uh, yeah, we should write a book on, on how these can be applied in the classroom. And I said, okay, well, let's give the publisher Parallax it's right here in Berkeley, a call and just see if they're at all interested. And they said, yes, we want that book. And I said, oh, now I have to write a book, uh, which I, you know, I didn't have in my plans, but, um, but she's such a, a, f- a positive energy and force and had all this material. 
And I saw that it was, it wasn't going to be all that much um, that was required of me. Really putting the, the joy practices and um, um, practice letters and stuff, uh, shaping them so that they could be an introduction to each chapter and uh, and some exercises for the adults, for the parents and teachers. And then she could explain how, um, how this works in the classroom or at home. And that um, sharing with anecdotes and stories and, and pictures and these fantastic lesson plans for each of the ten different... Um, um, wholesome states that are cultivated, and um, it's good. It really, I think, it came out well because she's just such a this a creative, dynamic force, and and had all these stories, and um, yeah, it's it's lovely. So I wanted to to talk tonight about a little bit from the book, but um, more about bringing dharma to uh, the next generation. And one of the things that really motivated me to to do the book with her was that, uh, as I've mentioned here before, I was a school teacher for a number of years. Um, In New York, I was a a teacher for about uh, almost 10 years, nine and a half, 10 years. Uh, That last half, I did a started getting into practice and I was on my first three-month retreat and uh, so I was kind of in and out for the year. I uh, didn't have my own uh, my own class, but before that I had my own class as a classroom teacher and then moved out to California and was here for, uh, and taught for two years out here. For those interested, I thought, oh, well, uh, just in case anybody might doubt, I pulled out a few pictures, six different, six different years, starting 1969 and I think ending in 74. But uh, I, I taught until, uh, until 77 in New York and then uh, out here till uh, 78 and 79. Um, so you can see my various incarnations from... Um, really long hair to a little bit cut off. I was the cool kind of hippie teacher uh, at, at PS, mostly PS 122 in Astoria, Queens. I taught in Bedford-Stuyvesant for a year. That first year, didn't know what I was doing. And um, I hadn't had any education background, teaching education. Um, truth be told, this was during... Uh, during the 60s and the Vietnam War, and I did not believe in that war. Uh, and teaching was one way, was one way you could get a deferment. So, and there was something, I always liked turning people on to stuff anyway, so I said, oh, maybe I'll be a teacher. Sounds, sounds like a better alternative. And I took a test, and then I was in the classroom like two weeks later. Uh, what do I do now? You know, and that first year, chairs were flying, and uh, and I went actually. I didn't have my own class that first year. <coughs> this was really uh, just throwing one into the lion's den, so to speak. I would go to go to the school, this is in Brooklyn, PS 129, um, and each morning they would say, okay, at 9 o'clock you're going to be in this second grade class, at 9.45 you're going to be in this fourth grade class, at, not, at, uh, at 10.40 you'll be in this third grade class, and it was a different class every time. It wasn't like, this is my week's schedule. It was just whoever was out or whoever was given, uh, given a break that day. So you remember when a substitute teacher came into your class? Oh, goody. <laughs> well, 
that was me uh, until a second grader set me straight after about two or three months of getting a headache and stomachache every day and said, you can't just be a nice guy here. I said, you know, <laughs> he said something like that. He didn't put it quite. I, I, sp- I spoke to him. I stopped him at, at lunch. And I was on my way to lunch and having my usual stomachache and headache. And, and he said, hey, how you doing, Mr. Barris? I said, hey, Johnny, is your class always like this? He said, no, no. <laughs> well, why are you like... He said, you got to yell at us, man. You, you got you to gotta really be hard on us, you know. I don't want it. He said, well, we'll basically, we're going to walk all over you until you do. Um, <laughs> that was... I remember that lunch period as well as any lunch ever in my life because I decided... In my mind, this is the words that actually came through, I'm sharing with you. I am not going to let a second grade squirt give me a stomachache and a headache again. <clears throat> and when they came in from lunch, kind of bopping in with a substitute teacher, the first kid, I said, you! And all of a sudden they... They, they, they got quiet, and I said, oh my God, it's working. Uh, <laughs> but fortunately um, for everybody, I was, I was transferred that next, uh, <laughs> that, that over, the, over the fall, over the summer, and uh, ended up in this uh, school in Astoria, Queens, um, PS 122, where I taught for the next nine years. And I came in, let's see, I'll just tell you a little bit about, just for the fun of it. I came in, um, I, I had long hair and a beard, and I looked very different from, um, from what most of these kids had seen as a teacher, I, teacher before. Very different. In, in fact, if you remember, if you're old enough to remember the the um, TV show uh, All in the Family, Archie Bunker, he, it, was, it took place in Astoria, Queens. Very conservative, uh, kind of little United Nations, huge Greek community, uh, hi, um, Hispanic community, uh, African-American community, uh, Asian community. It was a bit of everything of aspiring people aspiring to the American dream and very conservative. And the first time I walked through the halls with the, the ones that had the doors open, I, there was a trail of laughter as I passed each, each door. Like, ah, did you see who just walked by? And the, the principal, Mr. Freed, bless his heart, said, you know, I think uh, I think really the beard and the and the hair should go, and I said, Mister Freed, um, they've never seen anybody up close like this before. It might really be good for them to see that that somebody who looks different can be relatable too. And I said, give me two weeks. Just give me two weeks, and if at the end of two weeks it doesn't work, it's clear that it's just too much for them to take on, I'll cut my hair and shave my beard. He said, okay, fair enough. And I, it was my first intensive metta practice, concentrated metta practice, that I'd ever, I never heard of metta before that I ever did. And I just was going to beam everybody with love and kindness. I never had to shave my beard or cut my hair. And, and then it became, oh, you're in Mr. Barris's class, the cool guy with the beard and the hair. And, and, the, uh, and I, see, I brought in the guitar. That was my... That was my carrot. That's what I said. We get through this this week. We're going to have Friday afternoon. We're going to have a really good time singing. You know. So uh, after I got my 
my, uh, you know, wet behind the ears uh, after I got a little bit of, of experience under my belt. Uh, I really loved teaching for many years. And any teachers here? Any school teachers? Look around. Just keep your hand up. These people deserve tremendous appreciation and hold, I think, as important a job as any in our society. Um, And when it's good, it's really good. When it gets old, it gets old very fast. You have to have the energy and the patience and the group energy, sophistication, and just really um, do so many things besides impart a curriculum. Uh, So I have tremendous respect when I see and meet teachers. Anyway, I, I really loved it for... Uh, for many years. Towards the end, after I got into the Dharma, I felt there was something, something else calling me, and, uh, and that principle left, and another principle came who was more interested in straight lines and good lesson plans than, than what was going on, and uh, I said, oh, I think it's enough, and by that time, I was, I was ready to move out to California. Anyway... Mm. My challenge to myself as a teacher uh, was to find, find the heart, connect with the heart in every student in the class. And some students, some kids, they're just so full of love, you've you, you got to wear eye shades, you know, because they just are sparkling so. And some have learned that that's not that they didn't learn that that's the best way to get attention. And for whatever their conditions at, at home or um, in, in, their, uh, in their upbringing or whatever, um, really uh, had some problems and would, would, could be disruptive. But my challenge to myself was somewhere I was going to find and connect with each kid's heart sometime as soon as I could by the, you know, as the, as the class went on. I had, a, I had a good start because they wanted to be in my class. That makes a big difference. Oh, wow, we're in Mr. Barris's class. And I'd start off the year, one more thing I'll, I'll, I'll share about this. I'd start off the year, first day, knowing that they were glad to be. I, we would sing in the assembly and I'd have the guitar and everybody would, you know, it, it would be fun. It, it wasn't fun all the time, but it looked like fun to be in Mr. Barris's class. And I said, okay, I'm really glad you're here. We can have a really good year together. There's just one rule that if you get, we're going to have a great time you and me and everyone. If you don't get, it's not going to be as good as you, you imagine. And that is, I just need for everybody to treat everybody else with respect. And if you get your, your fun by making somebody else feel bad, you're not going to have as good a year as you think. If you don't get into that, we're going to have a great year. So that was the bottom. I said, do as best you can on your work, on your, you know, your behavior and all. This is the one thing. And, and we had a, generally a really um, good time in the class. Not straight lines, not very good lesson plans, but it was a good feeling in the class. And one of the things that I'd love to do was, uh, was co-create. This is one of the lessons that I learned in teaching uh, kids that, you know, when I thought it was all up to me, it's up to me to keep them quiet, it's up to me to keep them engaged, it's up to me to provide some brilliant lesson. Um, it was exhausting. But when it took me a f- couple of years to get this, when I saw that we could co-create together and 
delegate, and a kid would come up and say, hey, Mr. Barris, uh, why don't we do this project or that project? And I'd say, that's a great idea, Marina. How are you going to do it? What do you need? You know, and then she'd be in charge of the project and get other kids. And it, was, it made so much sense. It was a whole lot less work for me and a whole lot engagement for them. So I've been trying to uh, delegate and get people to do things that I think they will enjoy for the, the last 40 years. Uh, oh, you can do this. Uh, yeah, better than me doing it. No. Um, but to, to co-create together uh, really um, is, is one of the things I learned in, in teaching. Um, and then in 1974, I got turned on to the Dharma. I went out to Naropa Institute that summer, and I came back and I was kind of transformed, or the beginning of that transformation, and I said, how can I bring this into the classroom? And I had a, a really good desk slam. You know, the kind you go, like that. And it would quiet down the class for about 30 seconds. That wasn't the way to do it. And they would quiet down through other, other ways. But this would get their attention, but it would just add to the noise in the class. Um, but once I got into the Dharma and got into practice, that first September back, when things got, it was one, one, um, one day, things were getting, you know, it kind of gets buzzy and, and, and the energy goes up. And, and instead of saying, come on, everybody, let's get quiet, I just decided to... Um, to get quiet myself. And I said, wow, there's all this intensity. And I was into sitting every day. I said, I'm just going to get quiet here. Whatever happens, I hope kids don't fly out the window. You know, <laughs> but I'm just going to get quiet myself. And I did. And as I did, all of a sudden, the whole class started quieting down and they were nudging each other hey check out mr paris what's going on with him and i got i heard it get quieter and i'm thinking to myself oh my goodness this is working oh this is they're getting quiet and i just stayed until i got really quiet maybe for a you know a minute or so which is a long time a minute or two and I opened my eyes, and everybody had this look on their face, like, where did you go? And that's when I knew I had them. And I said, hmm. well, if you really want to know, maybe I'll show you. Yeah. Yeah. I had them begging me to learn how to, I didn't call it meditation, uh, at first. Then I did, because actually in the fifth grade curriculum, religion was part of the curriculum in New York City. So when we got to Buddhism, we just stretched things out a little bit more. <laughs> and I would tell the story of the Buddha and kind of leave it uh, a cliffhanger each time, you know. <laughs> well, you're not going to stop here. Next week, we'll pick it up, you know. Tell us that story, and now then what happened, and then what did he teach? And you know, so um, that was when I first uh, I saw. Oh, they're hungry for this kind of stuff, and that's when I would get quiet um, for within myself, and it was a whole other dimension of practice in um, in the classroom. When uh, my son Adam. Uh, was about four or five, my, Jane and I decided uh, that we wanted to have a family program at Spirit Rock you know, because there wasn't anything going on. So um, 
There was one attempt at a, at a family day that somebody put on, but it was kind of chaotic. And then we said, okay, let's, let's just do this because we wanted Adam to have, have something. And then, um, uh, and the family program came out of that. And Adam was into it for a while, but then at some point he said, I'm just doing this to make you look good. Uh, you know, or, or because uh, I'm not into this at all, and they they said, and then he said, we said, what do you want to do? This is when he, from about six till about eight or nine, uh, we'd have family days, and he would come. We kept on the family days afterwards, but he wasn't coming. He said, I just want to play little league, so Adam wouldn't come to the family days. Dad, that's your budaya stuff. You keep it to yourself, and for a while. You don't want to force that on a kid. And, uh, and now he teaches meditation at Spirit Rock to teens so, uh, and to adults, too. So uh, the seed was in there, but it took a while to, to come out. Anyway, now, these days, mindfulness in education is huge. There's mindful schools, there's mindful... Uh, so many mindful programs, Kate doing her heart-mind education project, many, many, many programs. In England, it's part of the, the curriculum that the, um, the government sponsors, mindfulness and education programs. One of my, a, f- a good friend runs the, what's called the Dot B curriculum for secondary schools. Um, and it's just wonderful. There's some fabulous books. Um, here's Mindful Discipline with Shauna Shapiro. Uh, here's uh, The Mindful Child, Susan Kaiser Greenland, How to Help Your Kid Manage Stress and Become Happier, Kinder, More Compassionate. Um, many books. And now there's this Awakening Joy for Kids. Um, so... First, I, uh, I, I thought I'd share a little bit about the Buddha and his teaching to his son, uh, a discourse that I, I love. It's one of my favorite discourses of all, and I, I, do, I quote it. Some of you are quite familiar with this one. Uh, and then talk a bit more about and share some of the practices from, from our book. Um, so th- in this collection. This is the middle-length discourses, the Majima Nikaya, a collection of 152 discourses that have come down to us from the time of the Buddha. And um, the discourse number 61 is called um, Advice to Rahula at Ambalatika. Uh, Rahula was the Buddha's um, son who was born just, uh, just before the Buddha left, left the palace. And that is something to um, to sort out for oneself. How could that be that the Buddha left his son just after he was born because he had to um, such a deep yearning to find uh, the answer to what he was looking for, where happiness really lies. And, you know, it's controversial in, in, in many circles. And his name, his son's name was Rahula, and Rahula literally is translated as obstacle. That he saw, if I stay here and um, and become a father and a and a and a ruler, because he was a ruler, I will not be able to find. Uh, what I, I will not go on my quest, and better for me to go and find out where real happiness is and come back and teach my son and teach others. 
So this is a, you know, this is a part of the story of the Buddhist story that um, that can raise a lot of questions. And I'm not saying, uh, I'm not going to say one way or another, but this is just how the story has come down to us. But when the Buddha came back, he was gone for six years on his quest. He left at 29 and came back at the age of 35, enlightened. And he came back to his home town, and his his uh, the son's mother, who was not happy at all. Can you imagine? Not only is your father your father's left you, but what that that's a kind of disgrace to uh, to the woman. And here she she could have been she was the princess. But instead, she was abandoned. So she had her own, her own um, processing to do, to put it mildly. Anyway, when the Buddha came back, and he said, I've come back, and I want to share. And she said to her son, go to your father and get your inheritance. And when Rahula went to his father... The Buddha said, why don't you become a monk like me and I'll teach you what I know. Which his son did, again, not, not exactly what the mom had in mind. <laughs> and actually after, after that, then there was a rule that you had to have permission of your parents, of both parents, before you become a monk. But Rahula got in under the, can't even say grandfather clause, father clause. Um, And this was uh, his discourse. There are a couple of discourses to Rahula. And this is his advice to Rahula, who turned out uh, did become enlightened. So at least it has that positive ending. And Rahula uh, goes to his father and, uh, and he, first he gets a lesson in honesty. And uh, the Buddha sat down and uh, he, let's see, where is it? The Venerable Rahula saw the Blessed One coming in the distance and made a seat ready and set out water for washing the feet. The Buddha sat down, Blessed One sat down in the seat, made ready and washed his feet. The Venerable Rahula paid homage to him and sat down on one side. Then the, then the Buddha, I'll just call him the Buddha, um, left the little water in the water vessel and asked the Venerable Rahula, Rahula, do you see this little water left in the water vessel? Yes, Venerable Sir. Even so little, Rahula, is the recluseship or the, the um, spiritual life of those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. You see, there's just a little water in, in left. Well, that little not even that much is the is worth the the spiritual practice of somebody who knowingly tells a lie and then the the buddha turned the water vessel upside down and asked rahula rahula do you see this water vessel turned upside down yes venerable sir even so those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie have turned their spiritual practice upside down and then he he turns the water vessel right up again and asks, Rahula, do you see this hollow, empty water vessel? Yes, venerable sir. Even so hollow and empty, Rahula, is the spiritual practice of those not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. And then he, he goes on. He, he gets the point across, you know, don't lie. Okay. But then he goes on to share what I feel is the heart of the, of the discourse, 
um, which is tremendous uh, instructions for anyone, no matter how what age you are. He says, um, "What do you think? Um, what is the purpose of a mirror, Rahula?" And this, the boy answers, "Well, for the purpose of reflection, venerable sir." And he says, "Ah." so too an action with the body should be done after repeated reflection. An action by speech should be done after repeated reflection. An action by mind should be done after repeated reflection. And then he goes on to say, if you are about to do an action and you're not quite sure what the effect is going to be, reflect for a moment and ask, will this be, let's see how he says it, this action that I wish to do with the body might lead to my own affliction or the affliction of others or the affliction of both it is unwholesome. It is an unwholesome action with painful consequences and painful results. If upon reflecting that is your conclusion, then you definitely should not do such an action with the body. But when you reflect and you know, this action I wish to do with the body would not lead to my own affliction or the affliction of others or to the affliction of both, it's a wholesome action. With, a ple- with pleasant consequences and pleasant results, then you may do such an action with the body. So he says, think before you act. Where is this leading? And if it's suffering, don't do it. If it's not suffering and it feels, feels right, then do it. Then he goes on and he says the same thing with speech. If you're about to say something, Reflect for a moment, what's going to be the result of these words? And then he also says, if you have a particular thought that arises about somebody, and you see, let's see, is this thought going to cause harm to myself or to others? Um, Then don't do it. And if it doesn't, then it's okay. You can keep up with that thought. So he says, think... Reflect before you're about to do something. Makes sense. But then he says, you might not be so clear before the action or the words or the thought. It might not be so apparent to you. And you might find yourself in the middle of the action or the words, or the thought. And so he says, if you're in the middle of this and you can sense, "Mm, this is not going so well, listen. Listen inside. And if you feel at all off about it, don't do it. Don't speak the words. Don't continue with that line of thinking. If it feels like it's going to lead to an okay result, then fine. Then go ahead and continue that action or those speak those words or uh, continue in that line of, of thinking. Okay. But then he goes on. He continues knowing how human we human beings are. And he says, you might not catch it until after the deed is done, after the words are spoken, after the thought has played out in your mind. And this is the part that's so relevant to all of us. He says, just reflect. What has been the consequences of these actions? Has it been painful or has it been beneficial? And he says, if it has been painful, 
All is not lost. And this is what he says. This action, what that I'm doing with the body leads to my own affliction or affliction of others or the affliction of both. It is unwholesome action with painful consequences and painful results. Then you should stop the bodily action. Oh, sorry, this is, this is in, upon reflection. Did this action have this? And then if it did have this, these painful consequences, then you should confess such action or words or thoughts, reveal it, share it, lay it open to a teacher or to a wise companion in your life. That is, if you're carrying the burden inside, talk to somebody about it. Don't Try to keep it to yourself. It's too much to bear. We need to say, okay, I've done this. He doesn't quite in this discourse say make amends, but we all know how important it is to confess and make amends to the person on the receiving end. But then he also says, having confessed, revealed it, laid it open to another, you should then undertake restraint for the future. And this is what is known as wise remorse, which is different from guilt. As I've mentioned, I know guilt. I come from a lineage of guilt. And all guilt does is perpetuate the lousy feeling and you feel very contracted and you either go ahead and do something else that's unskillful to confirm just what a rotten person you are or keep on beating yourself up and saying, I did that and there's no way out and you can spend a lifetime in guilt. But he says instead, have what's called wise remorse. And wise remorse is reflecting, oh, when I did this, this is how it felt. This is the consequence of my action and I will learn from it and make a commitment to not do a similar kind of act or to learn from it and not say things in the way that I did or not continue a line of thinking that's not serving me or as I've quoted Julia Butterfly Hill here many times as she she beautifully puts it as long as you're learning there are no mistakes as long as you're learning then any mistake you've made is part of your awakening experience so this is something for you to consider when you are um, processing some unskillful things that you've done. It's never too late. You're not going to fix the past. You know that, that great line, forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past. Forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past. You're not going to change the past but you can use it as a springboard to deeper understanding and learning and feeling your own humanness so that then you can um, act in a way that's going to be beneficial to yourself and to others. Okay, so this is the, the Buddha's advice to his, uh, his son. And now like to make a, a few more contemporary leaps in how uh, the Dharma can be, can be shared with, with kids in so many ways, especially if you can make it fun, engaging, creative, and deep. It can still be very deep, but 
to learn how to do it in a way that your um, the communication is received as a kid would receive it. It's one of the things that teaching fifth grade, I think, fifth grade and sixth grade, was probably as good a preparation for for sharing the Dharma as as I could imagine because most people just want to have it accessible and understand. And I, you know, I, I try not to get into, at least in these kind of discourses, too complex um, conceptual um, teachings, um, although I love them, and in, if it was one-on-one or in answering questions, might get into, uh, into a deeper kind of refined esoteric topics, but um, to make this practical to your life, really, what, you're, what I want to do is have people be able to look for themselves and see, oh yeah, I, have, I don't need to study the Majjhima uh, Nikaya or the, although it's great if you want to, I don't need to become an expert in Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, all of those things, if you like to study, are very powerful. But mostly the Dharma is right inside. So um, making it simple enough, this is one of Thich Nhat Hanh's gifts, simple enough that, uh, that, that anybody can understand it and then have people take a look for themselves, I think is really um, a, a useful offering as well. So I think I'll share with you, say, a couple of practices that Michelle has. One is, as one of the chapters is on integrity, that is, just like Rahula was being taught by his father, living in te- with integrity creates a sense of inner harmony. But we carry around things, as I just said, within us, and they make it really hard to, to settle down. So here she, she says this lesson on cutting the cords that bind you. One day I asked the children to deeply relax while we did a 10-minute guided mindfulness session. I then asked them to think of one thing that was bothering them, a regret or time they felt out of integrity with themselves. We discussed what integrity meant and wrote examples on the board. I suggested they choose a memory of something they did long ago or an event that happened today It might be something that carried some sense of guilt, shame, or wrongdoing. I then gave an example from my own life, and this created a sense of vulnerability and willingness to share. I shared that I'd taken money from my mother's purse without asking when I was young. And even though it was a small amount, I still felt out of integrity with myself. And it it stayed with me for a long time. I had the lights turned down very low to the children so, so the children could only see their own paper in front of them. They wrote about a regret or time they felt out of integrity on the paper. They then rolled it into a, into a tube and tied it with a six-inch cord that I had previously cut for them. One child asked if she could write about something someone had done for her to her that she needed to let go of. I said, of course. Then whatever was sticking or arising, that whatever was sticking or arising was the perfect thing to focus on. I reminded the children that the wrongdoing did not have to be a big thing. This is a short session, and they could just start small. If something huge was arising, it might be better to do that at another time. I did this because I wanted them to feel safe and successful without tapping into something we couldn't manage when I had 28 students and limited time. With our little paper rolled up and tied up with string, one, per- one person and their neighbor stood up in the middle of the circle next to a garbage recycling can that I had placed there. 
they walked to the can and said, I cut the cord of the things that bind you. May you be well. Then the person with the paper cut it up and sprinkled it into the can. The most amazing part of the whole exercise was that just before they cut the cord, I asked them to place one end of the string into the part of the body where the problem was stuck or held in. Without missing a beat, every child except one was able to identify the place. Guess where most strings were stuck? The solar plexus wins the top spot. When the whole class was finished cutting the ties, I exclaimed that the garbage can was so incredibly heavy, I bet no one could lift it. They all put up their hands to try to lift the grief. We then brainstormed ways of supporting ourselves in letting go of worries. At the end of the day, I asked children what their favorite part of the day was. We had an action-packed day, so I was curious in this one particular day if anyone would remember the ceremony. Over 50% said it was the most meaningful part of the day. When you try this lesson, ask the children perhaps a week later if their burden has been lifted. Remind them that releasing burdens may take many, many times before they're free. And then there's a home practice as well. So, so simple, isn't it? Doesn't it make you feel like wanting to cut up some paper and put it in a garbage can? And then, oh yeah, oh gee, my gut feels so much lighter now. It's so, it's so simple and yet so powerful. Those things stay with you for a long time. If the Dharma is going to truly do healing on this planet, it's because the next generation is going to become more and more conscious. Here we are on this cusp of consciousness and probably for many, we're more exposed to these thoughts than our parents were and certainly their parents were. And each generation, there's a, a bit more dropping away of the unwholesome legacies as consciousness grows. And each generation that we can seed with consciousness, seed, whether you call it the Dharma or not, seed with having them access their goodness and their kindness and their wisdom inside. That's what is going to change this world. So um, it gives me hope to see all of these wonderful books in education and... uh, Uh, and joy to be involved with this one. So, any any last comments? We just have a few minutes left. What's that? Hang on, wait, wait, wait. Actually, we'll we'll tape it, put it right into you. Now put it right near, there you go. There you go. Oh, there you go. We can hear you now. Yeah. I just wonder if there's any way to order the book that you don't have to get it from Amazon. Oh, you can get it in uh, in Pegasus. Yeah. Great. Thank Absolutely. You. Yeah. And if your local bookstore doesn't have it, tell them to get it. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, you can order it, order it from anywhere. Yeah. 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 Here's a, a question. Um, so I'm wondering, like, what is a good place in Oakland or Berkeley that if you want to introduce your, your child to Buddhism and, and that you can go as a family? Because what I find, like, with here is I come here, my husband stays home with my daughter. Mm-hmm. And so, like, like a Buddhist church or, or some type of temple where 
she as a kid can go or mm-hmm. if we're meditating or attending a service that she's still getting some exposure. Yeah. I, you know, I wish I had something to recommend. We used to have a, a, a family sangha here um, that met once, once a, a month, I think, but it, it hasn't for a while. It's something to consider maybe to... Uh, uh, how many people have kids and w- would like to be able to be part of a, a family sangha? Just, uh, just a few. The thing is, the people with kids are staying home uh, a lot, but, um, but it's something to consider, and maybe Kate and I can talk about it. East Bay Meditation Center, I think, has some, some family sangha, and I don't know just what the parameters are, uh, what the diversity um, um, amounts are, but you can check out East Bay Meditation Center. And Spirit Rock has a fabulous uh, family program, we're going to be doing a family day, Kate and I, in uh, next uh, in October, but it's it's filled al- already. But um, uh, there was some glitch in not in having to cap it at a smaller smaller amount. But uh, check out the Spirit Rock Family Program, and uh, they do have have family days and a family retreat. Um, but right now, I. I you might just Google family mindfulness. Uh, I've, I've tried. I've tried. I mean, basically, the the eight year old has said meditation is boring. Okay, so that's another thing you can't. That was just around the age that my son Adam said that's your budaya stuff. I want little league. Um, so you, ha- it has t- the kid has to be motivated at, at least a little bit, even if it's bribed at the beginning to just check it out first uh but um that that does make a difference uh, okay okay it's just about time to go so we'll we'll close with a loving kindness and and just uh remembering that uh beautiful quote from Jesus that said uh, uh unless you're unless you're converted as children you will not know the kingdom of heaven so there's a child in all of us that has a sense of wonder and wants to learn. And um, if we can remember that child in us, then it will come out more with others too. Here's a study. Regularly having fun is one of the five central factors in leading a satisfied life. Individuals who spend time just having fun sometime just having fun, are 20% more likely to feel happy on a daily basis and 36% more likely to feel comfortable with their age and stage in life. So um, let the kid in you come out. Okay, so let's go inside and appreciate that child inside that has childlike wonder. And know that what your practice, what you do, is contagious for others. And especially for the next generation. And we can wish well for all beings tonight. Healing, including healing for Patricia and Monique and Ryan, who have health issues and who are, and one of them has a child, we can include them in our metta. And for all the people who are going through a hard time, may they be free of their suffering. And for all who are the cause of well-being and happiness. They may continue doing that. And may our time here together be of benefit to all beings everywhere.
Okay, thank you very much. <clears throat> Have a good week. <clears throat>